So Joshua uh, gave us a brief glimpse into part of his agenda, uh, assuming that he is reelected as an elder. Uh, as you walk out this morning, he also has hats he's giving away, and they say, make Prairie View great again. So, so he's, really, he's really campaigning. So we're glad you're here with us this morning. Uh, we're happy that you're here at Prairie View. And we're finishing up a sermon series on practical matters. And as we do that, we arrive at a topic that can quickly get tempers flaring. And the topic, of course, that we're talking about is the topic of politics. Now, today we're going to break the rules of party etiquette. We're going to talk about the two things that you're never supposed to talk about in large groups of people. And that, of course, is religion and politics. And better yet, we're going to talk about them at the same time. It's going to be a lot of fun. Now, this topic of politics may not sound quite as practical as topics we've talked about so far. Things like technology, marriage, family, work. But this is absolutely a practical matter in our lives. Politics affect every single one of us. We all live in a country, in a state, a county, a city that has formal government, elected officials, laws, legislation that we are charged to follow. And politics are a practical matter of life all the time, but especially in the midst of an election year, which if you didn't hear, we have an election coming up this November. So the question we're asking is this. How do politics intersect with our faith? How does politics intersect with our identity as God's people in the 21st century? Now, we're not the first people to ask that question or to discuss that question. And we often see two extreme and, quite frankly, insufficient answers to that question. One extreme is for Christians to obsess over politics. And whether you think it's fair or unfair, accurate or inaccurate, that's the impression that a lot of non-Christians have about Christians. That all we care about is politics. Specifically, all we care about is one particular party. The other extreme is to completely disengage from politics as if that somehow makes us more pious, somehow makes us more pure from the rest of the world. But is that really a practical option? The question that we're discussing is, is there such a thing as a healthy middle ground when it comes to political involvement for Christians? Is there a healthy middle ground where Christians don't live or die based on what's happening in Washington, D.C., But at the same time, we don't completely abdicate our privilege of making our voices heard in the political process. Where do we go from here and what kind of guidance does the Bible have to offer us? Well, this morning we'll be in a few different passages, but we start with 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 13, if you'd like to follow along. On our chair Bibles, this is on page 702. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one home when you leave. But before we do any reading... Any further discussion? Let's pray together. Father, we are very grateful to live where we live, to live in the time that we live in. We are so, so privileged, and we have so many things that so many people can only dream of, so many people that things only, so many things that people only imagine. And Father, I pray that. As we look at the world around us, as we try and discern what it looks like to live faithfully as your people in this world and in this time, 
I pray that you'd give us great humility. I pray that we would take very seriously the responsibilities we have to our families, to our spouses, to our neighbors, to our communities. But more than anything, we would consider the responsibility we have to live as your people. But it's not just a priv- uh, responsibility, it is a privilege uh, to live as your people, to live in this world and to be able to call ourselves sons and daughters of God. Uh, we can only do that because of what Christ has done for us. And so, Father, as we embrace that identity, I pray that that identity would bear itself out in practical ways, in our words and our deeds and in how we view the world around us and in how we engage the world around us. Again, Lord, give us humility, give us wisdom, give us discernment as we discover these things. And Father, thank you for your son, Jesus, who died on the cross for us. And again, because of that, we can call you Father. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there are a few ground rules I'd like to establish before we have a discussion of this nature. And primarily two main points that I think are important to get on the same page about. Now, the first point is this, and just bear with me as I'm saying this, just bear with me. The United States of America, as wonderful as our country is in so many ways, our country is not God's chosen nation. Biblically speaking, there are only two groups of people that can make that claim. And those groups of people are ethnic Israel in the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament. You see, in the Old Testament, Abraham and his biological offspring, the nation of Israel, they were God's chosen people. They could make that claim that no other nation around them could make. That was a completely unique identity for the Israelites. And in the New Testament, the biblical understanding of God's chosen people Israel, well, that understanding begins to shift a little bit. As Paul argues extensively in the book of Romans, true Israelites are those who accept Israel's Messiah. That, of course, is Jesus. Now, what makes that a little bit awkward is that many people will accept Jesus in the New Testament who aren't actually Israelites, aren't actually children of Abraham. But Paul makes it clear that those are God's people. Your response to Christ is what determines whether or not you can call yourself a child of God. So therefore, if you wanted to identify God's people or God's chosen nation today, you'd be referring to the church, believers in Israel's Messiah, not any particular earthly nation. Now, that being said, has God blessed our country in many ways? I'm sure he has. Has he used our country to accomplish his purposes in history? I'm sure he's done that as well. Does God love our country? Of course he loves our country. God has blessed our country in spite of its strengths and weaknesses, successes and failures. God has used and is using and will continue to use earthly nations and kings and rulers to accomplish his purposes all too often when we don't even realize it. And yes, God loves our country because God loves people created in his image from all countries. However, with all that stuff being said, that doesn't mean that the United States is God's chosen nation. That's point number one. A second ground rule, second point to consider is this. 
throughout much, if not most, of the history of Christ's church. Christians' relationship with earthly government has been a roller coaster ride at best. In the first several centuries of the church, suspicion, opposition, and even outright persecution from government, that was the norm. And for us, as Christians who haven't faced significant opposition from our government, at least not yet, again, nothing is impossible, but as Christians who haven't faced that kind of thing from our government, we've had a luxury that many, if not most Christians throughout history, simply haven't experienced. Now, for us, this can be both a good thing and a bad thing, good results and bad results. The good results are pretty obvious, right? I mean, it's a good thing that you probably don't know any Christians who have been burned at the stake or buried alive at the hands of our country's government. That's a good thing. We live in a society where we've been mostly free to do whatever kind of Christian ministry we want. We've been able to practice basic rights like the freedom of speech to share our faith in both public and in private. Those are all good, wonderful things that we are privileged to experience. But there are also bad things. And the bad results might be a little less obvious. You see, in a society where most Christians have rarely, if ever, faced any significant opposition for our faith, we might be guilty of holding a watered-down, neutered form of cultural Christianity that really doesn't stick out at all from the world around us. Instead of an authentic faith, Tried and purified by heat and pressure. So before we go any further, we need to keep those two things in mind. Our country, as wonderful as it is in so many ways, is not a new version of Israel. And the lack of opposition to our faith at the hands of government, that's a luxury that we've had that most Christians throughout history haven't had. But in light of those things, back to the original question. How do we as Christians today wisely engage in the practical matter of politics? And at an even more basic level, how do we as Christians relate to our secular government? So again, let's get into 1 Peter chapter 2, our first passage of the morning, starting in verse 13. Peter writes, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. The core message that Peter gets at in this passage is relatively simple. The core message is Christians submit to the governing authorities, submit to the human institutions. Now, we also see a little something about government's God given responsibility, government's God given role in this passage. And according to Peter, that is to punish evil and praise good. Now, we'll talk about that more momentarily. Now, for Peter, the purpose of this submission isn't just to stay out of trouble, even though that is a part of it. The purpose of this submission is to give a positive witness to those around us 
as we proclaim and display the truth about who God is and what God has done through Christ. That's why Peter says that your submission is meant to silence the ignorance of foolish people. It's a form of witness. Now, these words from Peter are particularly powerful when you consider who he's writing to. He's writing to people who know a whole lot more than we do about suffering for their Christian faith. And after all, it's hard enough sometimes to submit to those who genuinely love you, much less those who actively oppose you. These words are powerful. They're countercultural. There's something that we should take very, very seriously. But there's another passage to consider as well. Romans chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Maybe the core passage that Christians turn to when we talk about this issue. Verse 1, Paul writes, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, Revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So like Peter, Paul charges Christians to submit to the governing authorities, unless, of course, you want to incur judgment from them. But on top of that, Paul argues for submission, not just to stay out of trouble, not just to give a good reputation to the cause of Christ, but for the sake of conscience. The idea seems to be that whenever possible, Christians are charged and challenged to do the right thing in the eye of the government. It's been noted rightly before that to the best of our abilities, we Christians are called to be the best citizens around. We are called to be the most upstanding citizens around because this can bring great glory to God, similar to how our work can bring great glory to God from last week. But Paul also goes a little bit deeper into what Peter discussed, and that's the God-given role and responsibility of government. He says something similar to Peter with the idea that government's role is to punish evil and praise good. Punish evil and praise good. When functioning as God intends, the role of government is to promote righteousness and justice to somehow foster an atmosphere of peace and order in the midst of a fallen world. Now, it certainly should be noted that as Paul says that governing authorities are appointed by God, that's a big statement to make, isn't it? Governing authorities are appointed by God. Well, Paul doesn't just say that as yet another reason to submit to them. He's not just saying that to say, hey, the government is there. God put them there. So you better blindly and naively obey. That's not what Paul's getting at. Paul's getting at 
that because God has appointed them, because God has put government there, because God has established government in this fallen world, what that means is that government has to answer to God for how they fulfill their role, for how they fulfill their responsibility. Government will have to answer to God as to whether or not they are punishing evil and praising good. That's a responsibility for us to submit to government. But it's also a responsibility for government to fulfill the role that God has given them. Because God is the one who put them there in the first place. We submit to government as government submits to God. But of course, here's the rub. Here's the hard part. You look in the pages of history and government doesn't always fulfill that role and that responsibility very well, do they? Sometimes they get it right and we celebrate that. We honor God when that happens. We praise God when that happens. Sometimes things are a little bit mixed. They get some things right, but then maybe other things not quite so right. And then there are other stories throughout history where government has gone completely off the rails. And government has done shameful things in the eyes of God. What do we do then? All too often, government does get their role reversed. Government can be guilty of praising evil and punishing good instead of the other way around. What do Christians do when that happens? Continue submitting? Blindly obey? Naively go along with it? Well, for that, let's turn to some of the words of Jesus. Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Speaking of appearances, Jesus, have you lost weight? You look great. Verse 17, tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. So they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God, the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. So the Pharisees, with their unlikely teammates, the Herodians, try to catch Jesus in a trap by asking about taxes. They butter him up. They try to make him happy. They try to impress him. And then they ask a really difficult question. Now, the reason it's unique for these two groups of people to come together, the Pharisees and their disciples, along with the Herodians, is because true Jews had a contentious, at best, relationship with Roman government. Meanwhile, the Herodians, who were often viewed as Jewish sellouts, they didn't hesitate to celebrate Roman government. And yet these two groups come together to try and put Jesus between a rock and a hard place by asking about taxes. But of course, like we've seen so many times before in the Gospels, Jesus doesn't fall for it. He doesn't go into the trap. Instead, he shows that one's submission to government and one's submission to God 
are not always opposed. And that ideally, God's people should strive to honor government appropriately while honoring God appropriately. You don't have to choose between the two. But, again, at the same time, what if there really are situations when that's not possible? What if we really do have to choose? What if our loyalty to God and loyalty to government, submission to God and submission to government, really truly are set up against each other? What do you do then? Well, when government fails to honor its God-given task, there is certainly a biblical track record for critique, and there's even a track record for civil disobedience. Christians should not be complicit in or turn a blind eye to moments when government fails to punish evil and praise good, or when they intentionally celebrate evil and demonize good. There are multiple examples of this throughout the Bible. The prophet Elijah vocally opposed King Ahab and Jezebel because of their wickedness. Daniel and his friends vocally opposed and outright disobeyed the commands of foreign kings they lived under, demanding that they commit idolatry. They refused. John the Baptist got himself killed by publicly condemning Herod Antipas's marriage. There is certainly a track record here of Christians, of God's people, not just going along with whatever government tells them to do, not just eating whatever government puts in front of them. And if we follow the words of Jesus, we give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but we do not give to Caesar what is God's. We honor and we submit our government so long as we do not dishonor God in the process. And if we had to choose between who deserves our loyalty, the decision really isn't very hard. Our allegiance lies with our one true Lord, our one true king, who is far above any earthly nation or any earthly government. Now, that being said, civil disobedience, I want to make this clear. Civil disobedience in the name of God is not something to be taken lightly. This is not just a time for us to say, okay, well, I'm kind of annoyed with the government, so I'm just going to disobey them and cover it up with the name of Christ. This is not just an excuse for us to neglect our responsibilities and our duties as citizens just because we don't like something that government is doing. If we ever get to a point where we as Christians are seriously considering civil disobedience, refusing to submit to government... That is something that we should take very, very seriously. Something that is a last resort. Something entered into with much humility and much prayer. We do not take that lightly. So we submit to government, but not at the expense of our submission to God. But there's more to be said in the New Testament. Paul specifically, 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications... Prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So we have these commands to submit to government, but again, not at the expense of our submission to God. But then we shift gears a little bit and see something that maybe is a little more passive, you might think. 
And that's the command from Paul to pray for our government. Now, let's all be honest. When's the last time you prayed for your government? Prayed for our leaders. Like legitimately prayed for them. Not prayed for them to lose an election. Not prayed for their legislation to fail. Not prayed for something to go wrong for them. When's the last time that we actually prayed for the well-being of our leaders? When's the last time that we prayed for their physical health, their spiritual health, their mental health, their wisdom, their discernment, their humility? Not that they would lose or not even that they would win. When's the last time we really prayed for their families? When's the last time that we really prayed for them to have wisdom in the midst of incredible pressures that we don't even fully understand? When's the last time we prayed like that? We're really good at critiquing our government. Really good at criticizing our leaders. But how often do we pray for them? We as followers of Christ, we pray that our elected officials, we pray that our government, we pray they fulfill their God-given duties. We pray that they seek justice and equity, that they do that with humility. We pray that they understand that they will answer to God and that they take that seriously. We pray that our government officials would treat the people they serve and the people they lead with dignity as human beings created in God's image. We pray that our government officials would be the opposite of the wicked judge that we read about in Luke chapter 18 a few months back. If you remember that judge, Jesus says that he neither feared God nor respected man. We pray that our elected officials would not be like that judge, that they would fear God. And they would respect man. We submit. We keep our loyalty to God above all else. We pray for our leaders. But one more thing we see in New Testament that I think is worth mentioning is that we strive to use the rights that government allows us to practice for God's glory. For example, in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul leverages his rights as a Roman citizen to avoid getting flogged. There's a big hubbub in a community. Paul is about to get punished. Flogging was a terrible form of punishment, a brutal form of punishment. And at the very last possible moment, Paul speaks up and says, now, hey, wait a minute. I'm a Roman citizen. You can't legally flog me. And of course, the Roman officials have egg on their face. The point is that Paul didn't hesitate to use his civil rights for his own good, for his own advantage. And for the advantage of his ministry. Later in the book of Acts, Paul will appeal to Caesar because he believes it will help advance his ministry. Likewise, we shouldn't hesitate to use our rights to make our voices heard in how our government functions. We've been given an incredible privilege of having a say in what kind of leaders serve in our government. And if nothing else, we want leaders who at some basic level understand the role of government given by God. Some basic understanding of what it means to fear God and respect man. Now, in light of this fall's presidential election, it's been argued multiple times that we shouldn't expect the president to be a Sunday school teacher. And that's true. Don't think we really have that option this year. Now, that's true in a secular government that we shouldn't expect our leaders to be Sunday school teachers. 
But it also doesn't mean that we fail to examine the character of the leaders that we appoint. We still take that extremely seriously. But I also pray that we would use our civil rights not just to appoint certain leaders, but that we would use our civil rights to advance the common good of our nation. That we would use politics to make our world a better place, to love our neighbors, as Jesus would say. There's a famous passage in Jeremiah chapter 29 that talks about this. Jeremiah writes to Israelites who are living and serving under an oppressive government that has committed great crimes against them, that has mistreated them. And yet look at what Jeremiah says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. God tells the Israelites to intentionally make the place that they live a better place to live. To pray for their cities, to pray for their communities, even though they're a far way from home. I pray that we would use our rights and that we would also pray to further a society where all people can flourish in good, God-honoring ways as people created in his image. Politics is capable of a lot of good. Not eternal good, but a lot of good. So we as followers of Christ should use that as a means to love our neighbors. So we're taught to submit, not at the expense of our submission to God, pray for our leaders, pray for our cities, seek the common good, use our civil rights for the sake of ministry. All this stuff is good. All this stuff is helpful. But again, we should still practice our relationship to government with great discernment. Because we shouldn't mince words about the fact that there are certainly dangers and there are temptations as we walk this tightrope. So I pray that we would avoid the temptation, the hunger for power that sometimes comes along with politics. You know, it's not a coincidence that one of Satan's attempts to lure Jesus away from his mission from God was the promise of earthly power. Satan takes him on top of the mountain, says, Jesus, all the kingdoms of the earth are yours. Just submit to me. Just bow to me. Jesus, of course, resists. Satan uses that temptation because it's enticing. And that's often what political power can promise us. That we can somehow have power over kingdoms. That we can have leverage over other people. It is enticing. And many a Christian has been guilty of supporting whoever or whatever will give them earthly power, earthly wealth, earthly security, even if it means sacrificing their Christian convictions. May we reject that temptation. I pray that we would avoid causing division with how we speak about politics. That would be a significant temptation between now and November. People will disagree with us on various political issues. Some we think are really important. Some we don't think are that important. 
And many of those dissenters will be fellow believers. Well, those dissenters are still your brothers and sisters in the family of God. And Christ brought us together and Christ keeps us together regardless of whether there's an R next to your name or a D next to your name. Christ brought us together and Christ keeps us together. But it's not just fellow Christians. Non-Christians will see how you speak about political issues. They will see how you speak to those who disagree with you. And making your political opinion known or winning a political argument, it's not worth losing your credibility to share the gospel with those people. It's simply not worth it. I pray that we would avoid that temptation. And I also pray that we wouldn't forget the passing nature of government. Keep that in mind with all of these things. If you remember back in that book of Daniel we just talked about a moment ago, Multiple kings, multiple nations come and go throughout that book. Daniel sees multiple kings rise and fall throughout his time in Babylon. Maybe one of the themes of Daniel is that only God and only his kingdom will truly stand the test of time. That's why we can agree with Psalm 146, verse 3. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. Put not your trust in government. Put not your trust in political parties. Put not your trust in individual politicians or princes. Because none of them offer salvation. Politics are important. We shouldn't deny that for a second. And we as Christians should think very seriously and pray continually about how we participate in politics in ways that honor God. But we should also keep in mind that no earthly government can bring about the kingdom of God and no earthly government can thwart the kingdom of God. So I pray that we would submit our political rights to the purposes of Christ, the same way we submit every other practical matter of our lives to the purposes of Christ. Because the best way that we can possibly serve our neighbors, the best way we can possibly serve our country is by being authentically Christian. That is the best thing we have to offer our society, is our faith in Christ and our obedience to Christ. And when we're tempted to get flustered, scared, frustrated by what's going on in the world of politics, as I'm sure many of us are, I pray that we would keep in mind that our hope and our confidence in this life and in eternity are in God, not princes. Because regardless of who's in the White House, regardless of what party is in charge, regardless of who's a part of the EU and who's not a part of the EU, God is still God, the tomb is still empty, the spirit is still working, and the kingdom is still coming. We take politics very, very seriously. But we also keep in mind that princes can't offer salvation. But we know the king who does offer salvation. Let's pray. Father, it's so tempting to, again, get just frustrated, alarmed, worried, to get bent out of shape about what's going on in the political world. And and I'm certainly not exempt from that. I may be even more tempted by it than other people, but... Father, I pray that you would give us 
a sense of assurance, give us a sense of hope, give us a sense of confidence that remain steadfast regardless of what's going on in Washington, D.C., or regardless of what's going on in our state or our community. Regardless of what's happening in the political world, those things do not offer us salvation. Those things do not offer us hope and security and eternity. So help us to take those things seriously, but also help us to appropriately worry about those things. Father, I pray that we would keep in mind that in spite of all the things that are happening, you are still king. You are still God. That nothing surprises you. And Father, I pray that we would have a great sense of peace about that. Father, I pray that we would keep in mind that every single time that we declare that Jesus is Lord, we're making a political statement. We're saying to the world that all the other kings, all the other lords, all the other rulers, all the other authorities, they might think that they're king, they might think they're in charge, but they're really not. Father, I pray that we would worship you, that we would worship your son, that we would honor you as our true king. Thank you again that our king died for us. Typically not a strategy for political success, but you turn the world upside down. That victory and joy and reconciliation came through our king dying on our behalf on the cross. We didn't deserve it. We aren't worthy of it. But Father, let us be continually grateful for it. We love you. We praise you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Again, maybe you look at the world around us, you look at politics and elections and different things happening, and and you get really scared. You get really alarmed, and you don't really know where to turn, you don't really know what to do, you don't really know how you're going to have any sense of hope, any sense of peace in the midst of all the chaos of our world. Well, I pray that you would find that hope, find that peace, find that stability in Christ. Turn to him this morning, place your faith in him. Ask one of our elders about what it means to be a follower of Christ. I'm sure they'd be happy to pray with you, answer your questions, talk with whatever might be on your mind, whatever might be on your heart, whatever concerns you might have. So again, as we finish out this morning's service, as we finish one last song, talk to those guys. And again, we're grateful that you've been here with us this morning. And I pray that you would leave here knowing that your eternal hope is in Christ, not in princes.